0: Hey, welcome to High Resolution. My name is Bobby Goshaw. And I'm Jared Arondu. Every single week, we sit down with a master in the design industry. If you guys are liking the show, please, please rate the podcast on iTunes, on Overcast, on Pocket Casts, comment on all the casts, anything you're listening to this podcast on. We're not going to let you down. Today, we're not going to let you down again. Who are we speaking to today? We're speaking
1: with John Maida. John is the head of computational design and inclusivity at Automatic. (laughs) He's gonna tell us about the state of design education, the difference between design and art, and why diversity and inclusivity are very important.
0: We need to cut away to a quick partner message, but honestly, it's John Maeda, stick around.
2: For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now, it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster, and it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do.
1: John, it's great to have you. Glad to be here. So, first question, what's one thing about design that's clear to you
3: that is not so clear to other people? Design's about the customer, not just the user. So,
0: You're using the word customer the way you might use capitalism, markets,
3: to sell things? No, Well, design's always been about selling things. Mm -hmm. Even back to the era of the Bauhaus. But somehow design became disconnected from its capitalistic sort of frame. Do you have an example of that? The Bauhaus was created uh, to enable uh, German factories to create better wares, better marketable wares, in reaction to the excellence of the British, who in the mid-1800s needed to beef up their game against the French, Mm. who were selling things much better than the British and the Germans. So it's always been an economic play. I find it very interesting how that history has been disconnected from that moment to today. And now it's changing.
0: Especially now, especially in digital design, where the, the, the discussion around design tends to be around the facade and the, the look, not the business, essentially.
3: Well, it's because the, most of the technology-based design came from research. I was in research, and we had this field called computer-human interface design, mm-hmm. or human-centered design. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was because nobody was using it, and it wasn't very valuable. But now it's very valuable. Through smartphones, So many people can access this. So now it's become a customer question, not just a user question. So speaking
1: about the research, you were at MIT Media Lab in the 80s. Um, I believe you joined 96, like the, the research side, and you were there for 12 years. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is in the 90s. Like, I'm really curious what you were working on and what, what, what were you focusing on
3: there? Well, in the 90s, I was the guy who said that designers should program and people who could program should design, which was very unpopular. Um, But I had a a great research team, people like Ben Fry, Casey Rees, Golan Levin, uh, they kind of went off and built the field of computational design. And I think today we can look at things like Arduino, processing, things like that, coming from that era. But it took people who could go across fields Mm -hmm. to break down barriers, to make that happen.
0: What's the kind of research that you saw? I mean, that must be fascinating.
3: <laughs> oh, so we saw everything from 3D printing to <laughs> IoT to like piezoelectric things in your shoe. I mean, and that was in the 90s yeah. and 80s, right? It was all being invented, <laughs> but it wasn't until I got to Silicon Valley where I realized, oh my gosh, it's happening at scale. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. That happened like 20 years ago, or that happened 15 years ago. He was like, no, no, this is brand new. Yeah. And I was like, no, it actually took a while to get there. Yeah. Is there is there a moment when you when you say Silicon Valley, you're talking about your time at
0: Kleiner Perkins. Yeah. Uh, did you see like what, what what was a a technology that you saw there that just took you right back to the 80s and you said, you know, I I actually put that on my face or like I touched this
3: Oh, anything, years anything, ago. Anything, anything involving cameras and real-time streaming. Mm. It's wow. like, oh my gosh, this is great company, they got this thing attached to <laughs> whatever yeah. your camera's all whatever, like, oh we saw that. Yeah.
1: you know 15 years ago I can't imagine your face like in those interactions like they're telling you this to you like it's brand new technology I
3: know <laughs> it's like
1: are you ready be mind- blown <laughs> uh,
3: they're like I'm like okay you don't get it you don't yeah. get it yeah yeah uh, okay, I don't I don't get it yeah that happened quite a bit at the same time I would see things that I'd never imagined before mm-hmm. sure. like one time there was a there was a venture where the goal was to kind of like send out satellites with 3d printers to make new spaceships mm-hmm. and this is like Really? Yeah. <laughs> so there's something to about that too. You use a, a word
0: that I, I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with earlier computational design. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I've read the, the design and tech report that you put out where you introduced three kinds of designs. Yep. Um, could you walk us
3: through computational yeah. on the other two? Um, I think by being in Silicon Valley and seeing how design was becoming capitalizable, mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what kind of design it meant. So in the last design and tech report, we talked about how there's three kinds of design. There's classical design, there is design thinking, and there's computational design. Classical design is like design of this table, or design these glasses. It's design that's been practiced for decades. Beautiful design, classical design, collected by museums. Design thinking is design applied to organizations, to strategy, things like our friends at IBM. Um, How do I solve big problems with design thinking? How do I ideate together with a large team? Computational design is different. It's all design involving some manner of computation, whether that's software or hardware. It augments our senses. It connects millions of people. It involves data. It's a kind of design that's practiced in Silicon Valley a lot, and now all over the world. But it's a different kind of design from designing a table or designing your organization. It's special. But again, since the 90s, it was our topic. Mm-hmm. Designers who could code, coders who could design. It's not happening at scale.
0: Um, do you think that the, like the, the biggest difference, if we were to, to contrast classical with computational, is that computational design is never really finished? Um, and, and that classical design, like this table, like mm-hmm. your glasses, have to be done and yeah. put on a factory line. And, processed uh, at scale.
3: Absolutely. I think that really I I was very ignorant when I came to Silicon Valley. I had all the ideas and all the theory, but I hadn't seen it happening in practice at scale. So when I began to hang out with different, younger designers in Silicon Valley, I kept seeing over and over this kind of sadness Mm. by designers who wanted to ship perfect things. But I realized that it was actually their fault because they hadn't realized that the medium had changed. Before, you would have to ship a perfect thing because you had only one chance. Right. But now, you can ship it kind of broken, and you're supposed to to fix it over time. That is against the rules of classical design. Right, it's bending physics, right? So it hurts so much. (laughs) So I began asking the question, how do we actually just say that yes, if we're designing this, that's how we would do it, But this way is a different kind of design. And it's actually a very unique design to this era. Let's embrace this. But there's a problem in that.
1: I'm curious the question a designer should be asking themselves if they are that person who is longing for classical design again, right? Like, I mean, it's just very interesting. I I hear designers say this all the time, where it's like I, I had the entire concept in my head, like it was perfect and we couldn't get it out there. And I'm just curious, like what, what should they be asking themselves? Should they be moving over to computational design, or should they actually be going back into a different
3: career? I don't know i mean the the problem is that because the education system produces the classical designer mentality yeah it get it's so hard for people who are in software based design computational design to feel good yeah. to ever feel good so a lot of my my work now is helping people see that this is actually a different kind of design mm-hmm. with a different kind of value approach to how things are made. And the idea of perfection doesn't exist in the same way as this world. And for those who can't give up, you know, I go design a poster, design a book, make a video. That's all available to you. But if you're going to push the edge, come over here. This is a different kind of design. Let's appreciate it.
1: And are you saying perfection doesn't exist in computational design, or it's defined differently?
3: I think perfection does not exist, as you were saying. It just yeah. doesn't exist, it's a different kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that said, though, it doesn't mean you can't do things well. Uh, because perfection used to mean doing it well. But right here, it really is about being adaptive, and fluid, and changing to people's needs. That's a different kind of design.
0: I want to go back to to
3: MIT. You were there for
0: 12, 13 years? years, 12 years, yeah. And you've been in many places. I mean, you were the president of RISD. You went to KPCB. Now you're at Automatic. But MIT is where you spent most of your career. Um, In what ways, if any, was that a foundational experience for you? Were there any principles that you brought along with you that you still maintain? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
3: the, the main principle I took away from MIT was, I had really great mentors. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was this like kerfuffle on campus where people were like, you know, the Jedis were all kind of rustling around. And I was like, oh, I should get involved with that because I'm a Jedi too. Let's go <laughs> rumble, you know, there's something happening. Yeah. And I remember my mentor saying to me, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm gonna go like, you know, take on the, you know, the badness of whatever kind of thing. He said, tell me, Sean, don't focus on MIT, what's happening inside here. Focus on the world instead. Because that's where you're supposed to be. Be. And that really changed my perspective. So it meant that no matter how great of a place you're at, if you spend your whole time talking about that thing, you aren't really taking on the world. That's a big takeaway from that. Um, what made you leave? Like oh. What was the forcing I, well, thanks for asking. I read this book called *The Audacity of Hope* okay. by this man named Senator Barack Obama. <laughs> from my friend Becky Burmont, uh, she gave me this book. I was like, I don't read books, so I bought it on uh, like you know voice book or audible book. And I was listening to my car, and I'm like, wow, this is really inspiring. I'm American. I look different. He's this American. He looks different. He's trying to do something with that. That's not possible. And then I got a call from Spencer Stewart saying, hey, you want to be president of a college? And I said, I can't do that. <laughs> then the book said to me three words, yes, I can. Yes, we can. <laughs> I said, I can do that. Yeah. And um, so I, I left a, a wonderful job, a wonderful life, to meet this calling at the time in 2008 for people who looked different, felt different, to claim the role of an American and lead.
1: I- I want to touch on that a bit. So you joined 2008. This was around the time of the financial crisis, like 07 and 09, and it's also one year after the iPhone came out, right? Um, But you joined RISD as the president of the university, right? Um, But you were coming from MIT Media Lab. Like you, you had an engineering major. uh, You had not done much administrative work before that, and a big part of uh, of being a president of a university's fundraising experience as well, yeah. right? Um, so I'm curious, like, what did they see in you and that person who you mentioned who, who called you? Like, what were they looking right.
3: for? I think they were looking for someone who believed that art and design can make a difference in our world. And I felt that way. I also did my MBA as a part-time hobby. Mm-hmm. So it was always those curious about organizations. Yeah. Um, so the timing went out. And also it was this era of hope. I have to attribute it to that. Um,
0: what do you think is, um, How do you think about education today now, given all that MIT and RISD experience?
3: Oh, well, I'm very doubtful about education today. Uh, I've been doubtful since 2001. Uh, That's when I was on a key committee at MIT that that looked at the curriculum. It it was a great committee to be on. It changed my life because there was this one meeting where we're talking about advising freshmen. Mm -hmm. And um, we're talking about how advising freshmen at MIT used to be all done by professors, but MIT had hired all these, prof- these professional advisors. And so we, the Jedi, were like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. When we were MIT students, we had professors and advisors, and oh my gosh, what's happening? Uh, who's gonna help them with their future lives, et cetera? And so like two students on the committee, they, one of them got up and looked at all of us and said, what do you mean you'll help us with our future careers? You all don't have real jobs. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa. That's a fair statement. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, what did she say just now? I think she's dropping some serious truth. <laughs> and I, and, that, and people were like, oh, what is that? Now listen to her. Listen to what she said just now. That was some open of awakening. Because in the 1990s, the best place to be for tech was in the universities. Because nobody had computers. Sure. Um, there were no computers in companies. But by the year 2000, I could see that the companies had better computers than we did in the research labs because they replaced them at at quicker cycles. I saw freshmen coming with better computers Mm. than we had in the labs. I think, something is changing. I have to be aware of this. So, kept on going up the ladder, got my MBA as a hobby, heard the call for change hope. That's why I left, and then after I had led an institution through almost collapse to restoring it. Mm. I, someone told me, um, well, Sean, you know, we've given you a hard time here. Um, you can take it easy now. Mm-hmm. I said, take it easy now? That sounds kind of boring. Mm. <laughs> so I got a call to go to Silicon Valley, and I said, I don't know anything about that. Yeah. Um, and this is before the TV show, mind you. Mm-hmm. Um, let me delve deeper into my ignorance. And that's how I started there. I was at Kleiner Perkins and also at eBay, working for the CEO of eBay, yeah. John Donahoe.
0: Well, I, 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 there are probably thousands of students hopefully listening to this and watching this and watching you now, and you're, yep. you're speaking to them. Okay, assume that they're all here in this room. Oh my. What are you telling them about
3: what they're doing at university today? Oh. What, what
0: should they rather be doing? Yeah.
3: I think anything involving the computer or high technology, they're very unlikely to learn it in a college or university setting. So go old, go classics, study history, study philosophy, study the stuff that will never change. Liberal arts, embrace it. But anything involving technology is going to have to be learned in a company because companies are so far ahead. And this is the problem we're talking about before this. This idea of vocational education is looked down upon by so much of the elite world. The reality is that when it comes to high technology, if you aren't at the cutting edge of Moore's laws doubling every 18 months, if you aren't in industry serving millions of users simultaneously, you kind of are working in a fictional world of technology. Mm -hmm. So learn the older stuff and do a lot of internships, work in tech, learn it there. Be humble. Someone told me the biggest problem they see with the college graduates from top programs is they don't come out very humble because they've been taught that they've learned the best stuff in the world and they have this Jedi sword and it's so amazing. And, but. They've never used is millions I sort the diploma is that what that it's is? It's a diploma right <laughs> that you know but um, but in reality they've yeah. never worked with as you've worked in your careers millions of users simultaneously yeah, right. they've never analyzed data streams they've run queries on that they've never had to do that, yeah. so it isn't their fault, mm-hmm. but that that gap is only growing
1: it's a trade-off though because if, you're in, if you don't have the degree um, then Hiring managers are going to look to your experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously, people have found their different career paths. I'm self-taught. He's self-taught. Yeah. Um, and there are many people watching this who are on the cusp of deciding whether to go to get a design degree or to just fake it until they make it, right? But outside of going back to the classics, not fake it until do the work, right? right. Um, outside of uh, going back to the classics, history, philosophy, like what else can they be doing so that when they set foot in an interview with a hiring manager, yeah.
3: Well, it depends where they're gonna work. Yeah. Um, first of all, I always suggest to people that instead of going to graduate school, they should build a startup, or be in a team of a startup. You'll learn more and it costs less. Um, you'll eat the same food, like you know, instant ramen or <laughs> yeah. bad, you know, bad food like that. Um, but it's also which companies you wanna join. If you wanna work at Google, etc., cetera, whatever, you, there are these like, biases sure. to what schools you go to. Yes. That's why I joined Automatic, actually. Because the founder doesn't believe in all that. Doesn't believe in what school you went to or all that stuff. It's like, what can you do? So some companies are like that. So choose a company that isn't so biased.
0: Isn't it so interesting though that vocational schools are are good? Vocational schools have 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 a place in time when someone knows what they want to do and learn. They should invest in going to a school maybe that teaches them how to go deep on that thing. Right. Uh, but general schools are better maybe at giving you the entire lawn to graze on so that you can you can kind of find the patch of grass that's yeah. that's, that's that's that speaks to you the most. So, yeah, the sweetest
3: <laughs> patch of grass yeah. before you well, Is that how you is that how you think about it? I mean university and colleges are basically a network you pay to get into. So Ah, it's a a different product. Ah. Um, I do think that the a la carte, random sort of like boot camp experiences—they are companies. So you should be wary of what you're getting from them. If you can work in a real technology company, work in a startup, um, but don't rely on your your learning from this. It, like, if it's a Jedi saber, it's a Jedi little knife. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. It's the real work experience. Yeah. Like, I have learned so much at Automatic the last six months yeah. from all of my peers who are working there. Like, wow, I wish I knew this before. And I'll sit there listening to people like, uh, I might like Kelly, Bree,
2: yeah.
3: uh, Mel. Like, what, what did you say? Oh, I kind of looked it up, you know. Um, I'm catching up. So many people see you
0: as a mentor, uh, as, a, as a distant mentor. Um, how would you tell them to find, and I, we don't have to stay in technology here for a second, just as a human being, how would you tell a human being how to find the thing that they love to do? Um, and what is what is the right
3: time to do that? Like, what is the right way to do that? What is the right time right. to do that? Right, oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Well, first of all, I did mention that I'm relearning stuff, so Absolutely. people like, am. You guys are my mentors now, so I'm like, let me take a new move from them. Um, uh, that's a oh, quote okay. that's going to go so, on my on yeah, my. Bio. Exactly. John so. Beta said this. Bidirectional. <laughs> yeah. Really, it's just so like everything I thought I knew, I'm not sure about anymore. Um, the one thing that I do say to people who are asking what they should do, I always tell them, be sure you can make enough to eat. Because if you're counting on starving to get that thing done because you saw a movie or you read this book about this amazing person who starved their way to success, you should rethink it because that book is not correct. They somehow had a leg up to getting there. Maybe their parents helped them or their nephews helped them their uncles, it doesn't matter. They got, they, that helped somehow and they were able to eat. Um, because if you cannot eat, you can't do good work. And I learned this from Paul Rand, the designer. Uh, He told me that uh, you have to be able to do work that you don't like to do, sometimes, to pay the bills. And if you paid the bills, you can now go doing things that you want to do. If you grew up lucky to have a trust fund, you never have to do that. It turns out that most successful artists, you'll discover that they usually came from some very good trust fund background or came into some wealth in some time. So the thing you think is starving artist doesn't really exist. It's very rare. It's like maybe two or three percent of the artists have made it from left field.
1: I'm very curious what the second thing is. You mentioned the first one is make sure you have enough to eat, right? And I'm just thinking back. I'm half African, I'm half Nigerian. And um, culturally, for that side of my family, um, they tend to push their children towards careers like medicine, Law, um, science, nursing, because th- the thinking was you will have enough to eat, right? Like it's almost a guarantee, right? Um, so I'm just thinking, like I know I have an aunt watching this right now who's just like, "That's what I, that's what I've been telling her since she's two years old," you know? Um, but that doesn't compute out to the kind of work I do today, right? Um, so coming back to like that, you know, the the example you gave with Paul Rand, where it's um, have enough to eat so that you can do the things that you love or want to do, how can you turn the thing that you love or want to do into your full career?
3: Um, And is it always possible? Well, the nice thing about if you've earned enough, Mm -hmm. like excess capital, (laughs) you can now theoretically coast for a longer time. Um, You can buy two years instead of one, one hour. So it really is a question of if you have this freedom, now when you're in this creative space, you don't have to give in, mm. do you know what I mean? Like let's say I wanted to do this so badly and um, but I, I need this and this and this and so I'm gonna have to you know, uh, negotiate it down to something worse than I wanted to do. Um, you don't have to do that if you have capital. If you have capital accrued, you can apply it to what you wanna do. But when you try so hard to turn the thing you l- love into this, it's very hard. That's why I loved when Paul Rand at the age of 82 gave me the secret. An 82-year-old super successful man, he's all self-made. He said this is what he realized. So I live by that. I don't look for how to turn this thing into this. If he couldn't do it, I don't think anybody can do.
0: What was your relationship with Paul Rand?
3: Oh, uh, I found him in a book. I was a regular MIT computer science student. I found his book in the library, just like a few blocks away from here. I was like, "Whoa, this guy's really good at design. What is this design thing?" <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm good at making icons and whatever. We're like, oh, I really suck. You know, I was like, oh, this is really good. That's really bad. And I was like, oh, who is this person? And that was in the '80s. Yeah. And then years later, I was befriended by the Paul Rand of Japan, Iko Tanaka. And he introduced me to Paul Wren. And it was an amazing opportunity because I found him in this book. And suddenly I'm meeting the guy who, who made the book and pulled me into design. It was magical. So excuse the, the provocation here is no. deliberate, but um, in, in
0: 2011, yeah. you were at, still, still at RISD, right? and you were given a vote of no confidence, I believe. In I was awarded one. You were awarded one, you were awarded one. Um, but, and, and that was from the staff and faculty uh, oh, yeah. at RISD. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then somehow, magically, over the course of 12 or 18 months, yep. you turned it around and you made RISD the number one design and engineering school in the world, or design and art school in the world. Walk us through that. That's fantastic. Oh,
3: well, the CIA actually contacted me to ask that same question. The CIA? Yes, I mean I'm in the <laughs> wow. I, I'm in a certain number of presidents who were voted no confidence that year, <laughs> um, but I'm in the 0.001 percent that actually came back. Yeah. Sure. Um, how? Uh, it's because I listened uh, to a lot of people and what they were saying to me. It's one by one. And I began to understand that when people turn against you, it's because there's a simple story made. You you were in this whole era where we're we're not sure what we're hearing in the news. To me, it was like an early introduction to that. The story was that John came, he brought the global financial crisis, and many of our friends were laid off, Mm. and he must be punished. So if I heard that story, it's a good story. I listened to that story. I could understand where it came from. I knew I was also a change person. I changed a lot of things. Mm. So if you've been there for a while, it doesn't feel good. Um, But what happened is by that time, a lot of the changes I put in place were making things better. Mm. I focused on scholarships. I focused on student outcomes. I focused on improving the faculty's lives. And suddenly, things were going up. STEM to STEAM launched. It became a national movement. And what's great about things going well is people who might have been mean to you are like, oh my gosh, you're totally my friend. And it's just a matter of that. Um, it wasn't easy, it was very hard. It changed how I saw everything, actually. Mm-hmm. I realized that design is about listening, being agile, changing habits, behaviors, and just moving, not stopping.
1: You mentioned STEM to STEAM. Yeah. There's a difference, there's a, an A in the second word. Walk us through that, what was that?
3: Oh, well, I was so, well, like, well RISD's positioning moved up because I was able to see what's in it yeah. and just share it with the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this place called uh, Edna Lawrence uh, Nature Lab where it's a facility where you can check out cadavers not human cadavers, but like animal cadavers. It's a little bit strange, but it's interesting. But it's where artists learn to see things with their eyes and their body. And so I saw over and over the connections between art and science. And I was talking to so many art teachers in America who were losing their classrooms because STEM was more important. So we'd have art school classrooms turned into chemistry labs, and art was off the curriculum. So I saw the need to take this idea of art, which is close to science, and position position near STEM. And if STEM is important, why well, can't STEAM be important? And it just kind of like trickled forward and became a thing, and before you know it, uh, it became a national movement. And now it's actually an inter- international movement. Um, but it's all because what I could see, my, my job, any, any, any leader's job yeah. is to take what's there and just share it. So I, I don't want to glaze past the details here because yeah. I feel like
0: this sure. is where the devil really is in the details, right? So, yeah. um, you trickle, it trickled on and it became a movement. That trickling, let's go to the trickling. This, this happened with the Obama administration, is that right? Did you work yes. officially with the White House on this?
3: Oh, it gradually got there. So it was neat, it, well, it, was, um, it was with Congress. Okay. Um, because the neat thing about Rhode Island is it's a small state so the congressional representation would all talk to me. Uh-oh. I could also talk about cybersecurity, mm-hmm. so that was a plus too. <laughs> but they were the stewards of getting that going. Mm-hmm. And we got involved with uh, Congress, spoke to people on the White House side too, so it was just amazing. And
0: the fact that they prioritized us through
3: the act the administration itself through
0: an election year 20
3: wait when what what year it was, was this like 20 I forget 2012 Right. Uh, yeah that's like an election year right it was a major election year yeah. so, so this was actually prioritized in it was put into uh, uh, it was it was put into an act that art art education and STEM were important to link together. But that was all because the the, the congressional congressional delegates really got, pulled it together and made it happen. Yeah. Delegates. De- delegates. Delegates. <laughs> is this is this a symbolic thing or what are the yeah. outcomes here? Yeah. Like what what happened? The outcomes is that funding to arts began to increase again in relationship to STEM education because funding was being pulled out. Ah. It's important to note that STEM to STEAM was not loved by many art people because it was saying that art can be art by itself. Mm. Why does it have to be involved with STEM? Mm. But then you'd have a half a room saying, thank you for keeping our funding to our school. Yep. So if everything is a double-edged sword, anything that helps people, if it's, to your point, interesting, mm. it's going to alienate some, bring along some others.
1: And to clarify, STEM is science, technology, engineering, math? Engineering, math,
3: math. yep, okay. and adding the A.
1: And you
0: added the art?
3: Yeah. Well, we added the art. There are a lot of people involved did, with it. What did it feel like when,
0: when your, uh, your representatives from Rhode Island called you and said, hey, by the way, this is going to be an act. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to make this a thing.
3: It was very exciting. I mean, well, again, it was because... Um, you know, I had the fortune of finding the right people, finding the right things. Yeah. On my team, there was someone named Bebet Alina, yeah. who was my government rep, sure. who loved the idea, forwarded through her networks, and um, so I just had a good, good people on my team, good stuff to, to carry
0: forward. Would you say that this is a milestone, like one of the big milestones in your, in your life?
3: Definitely, sure. I, I, I was glad to connect something I care about,
2: technology, with the arts and make it official. For decades, design has impacted how we live. Now it's beginning to shape how we work. Here at IBM, design thinking has given us a new framework for teaming, for co-creating with our clients and users. It's helping us make decisions faster and it's keeping humans at the center of everything we do. Of course, we're inspired by our design program, which is over 60 years old. But today, IBM employs more than 1,300 professional designers, and we've certified more than 60,000 IBMers in the practices of IBM design thinking. The result, diverse teams working more closely than ever with our clients, their users, and our partners to create modern solutions that provide differentiated, human-centered outcomes to the world. We'd love to share this story more closely with you and I hope to see you soon at one of our IBM studios worldwide. We'd also like
1: to thank our friends at Envision for their support. Envision is the world's leading product design platform, powering the future of digital design through their understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world, like Facebook, Capital One, Netflix, and Airbnb. I work with remote teams all the time, and I found that keeping a healthy dialogue is really important. Without it, building strong work relationships gets a lot harder, and that leads to poor collaboration. I've also found that prototypes are a great way for me to show my full vision for a design, and this helps cut down a lot of back and forth. Envision makes all of this really easy. You can rapidly prototype your designs and collaborate across every stage of your project, taking your ideas from concept to code. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit envisionapp.com slash high resolution for three months free. All
0: right, so so right in the break, we we're kind of making fun of me being in my second quarter of my right. of my of my years. I'm, I'm th- making
3: fun of I'm admiring you. You're not admiring. You're making <laughs> a little
0: bit. So I'm I'm 32. Uh, Jared's 23. Two. 22. Goodness, what a child! <laughs> 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 gifted one. You're very gifted. Very. He's a savant. Um, and then you, you you use the word quarters, and you say Jared's in his first quarter. I'm in my second
3: quarter. Then you go into your third and your fourth, and then you die. Um, Question. No, no, the fourth quarter you might die. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Right. <laughs> Goes away. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: You had four coins on the arcade machine, one just take got <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> So I I I want
0: us to just explore for a second.
3: Sure.
0: What should people prioritize in these quarters? What are the what are the outcomes that you should expect?
3: Um, I think that the third quarter gets really hard because your body begins to break down physically. Most people don't realize this. I had the chance to work with AARP when I was at MIT. Uh, I was the research rep, Mm -hmm. and I loved working with them because they are the people that are over 50, and I was in my 30s. And I realized that when you're older, things are a little bit harder. Um, And the thing you don't realize is when you get over 50, your body's breaking down. So when you meet someone older and you think like, they're not really here, like why aren't they here? It's because stuff hurts. Mm-hmm. Like imagine if I like hit you two places, right? You're like, oh John, John why did you hit me? Like John, right, you know what i mean? saying? And so like, that's what it's like to be older. It's like, ah, oh, everything is hurting. So like, what did you say, Bob? What did you say? <laughs> you know what that's like. Yeah. But because you have less pain, you're okay, that's what happens in this, in this era. So it's harder to get to those. A lot of stuff gets done, yeah. it's gonna get harder. In your second quarter, you know that's coming.
0: Mm.
3: So you gotta run. Because it's your last chance when your body is working at its highest level Mm. to get it. The first quarter, you either waste it or you position yourself for a better second quarter. And I think most people tend to waste it. Mm. So the magic word for the first quarter is work. Work got to work. Did you get that? you just like, like you write that down? It's it's you got to <laughs> work. Which is hard because you're like, oh my gosh, you know, life is so good. Look at this TV show. It's amazing. Look, I can now binge watch it seven times. And so it's hard to escape yeah. that great place of non-work. I mean, it reminds
1: me of a football game, right? The first quarter you, you get on the field, you have full energy, right? You get the ball, you snap it and you're like. Uh, it's okay. We messed up. Like it's still the first quarter, right? Uh-huh. By the time you get to the third, come back from the half, your body's okay. breaking down. Right? Yeah, you no. hit in two perfect. places ten times. Right? There you go. So yeah, okay. great analogy. Um,
0: uh, unless you're Tom Brady, and unless you're,
1: and then you don't get touched. And then we're yeah. in Boston right now. Yeah, we're so in the land of Tom Brady. Tom Brady right now. <laughs>
3: All right. That's, so, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah.
1: So now coming to where you are today, you're at Automatic, right? Um, you joined to head up computational design and inclusion. Yeah. Uh, we already defined. Classical computational design thinking. So we know the computational design part. That makes complete sense. Yeah. The inclusion. I'm really curious why you chose that yeah. because I, I heard in interviews that you came up with your own title. Yeah. Um, and why you decided to prioritize it.
3: Yeah. Um, came up with it because I was in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and I noticed how. Less diverse it was compared to even MIT. Mm. In MIT in the 90s, uh, there was a president named Chuck Vess, uh, Charles Vess actually, who prioritized um, MIT's uh, laboratories to be equally outfit for, outfit for women and men. It wasn't that way. And there was data that proved it was not that way. And so Dr. Vest came out and said, I just saw, this is a report we've had, we're embarrassed, I'm going to fix this. And so I've known about these things for quite a while, but I went to Silicon Valley I noticed that, wow, I'm meeting a lot of good-looking Caucasian men Mm. all the time. Mm. I don't meet people who are not, well, even good or bad-looking, I don't know. Why is it that, how how come it's like this? So, whereas most of my friends are women. So I, I didn't understand that and began to think, this is an issue, I'd like to get involved with this, Um, And when Matt Mullenweg asked me to lead design, I asked if I could add the word inclusion in there. And he said, sure. Uh, What does that mean? Mm. And I said, well, design is about inclusion. Designers are always inclusive. It's because it's how they survive. It's how all great artists were made. Mm. You know, when you think of Picasso, he went to Africa, he changed everything. You think of Frank Lloyd Wright, he went to Japan. Everyone's in, Creative people are amazing remixers, mm-hmm. and so they need to be uh, diversely oriented. So that's to put them together. Diversity, and, uh, design, and inclusion.
0: For, for a company that does prioritize inclusion uh, and puts someone like you in charge of it, what are the advantages? What, what are the new um, principles uh, yeah. that you bring to the company, and then what are some of the advantages of those principles?
3: Whoa. Well, I will tell you that by having inclusion in my title, I have to hold myself to a higher standard. Of course. That was new to me. <laughs> hey, he's a design person. I can say this. I'm design inclusion. Whoa, what did I say? Like, what did you say? Like, what did I say? <laughs> um, uh, being called out on different things that I might say, like I, I might use the word crazy, mm. which is a terrible word to use, as you know, for someone who's mentally ill. Sure. Or the word blind spot often used in diverse and inclusion but if you're blind that means dumb. Mm, yeah. So what's a better word? Lacuna it turns out is a better word. So finding better words to be more inclusive is what I've learned by having this in my title and working with colleagues in the site automatic, the designers there who are helping me understand how inclusive design works whether it's accessibility or any kind of person with a different body type, or all these kinds of inclusivity, I hadn't considered in the past, but now I do. So there's a business leader watching this
1: right now and listening to you talk about yeah. inclusion, right? Um, and you've spoken about some of the advantages to having it. Obviously, you build better experiences because mm-hmm. you, as you, as you spoke about, designers being remixers, like remixes tend to be pretty nice, right? Yeah. Um, but what's the first step that a business can do? Yeah. Well. Is it hiring someone? Is it putting it in someone's time? Like, w- I, I,
3: I will say that as far as I know, there is no single answer mm-hmm. to improving a company's take on inclusion. Mm-hmm. I would say that the, the winning formula does involve having the CEO care about it because if the person at the top cares about it, it tends to be, be prioritized. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, I think any other strategy, like hiring a person, putting them there, having like things on the wall, don't really mean much yeah. unless it keeps coming from the top. I know when I was president of RISD, it was my focus. Um, it was a key thing. Once I left, things changed a little bit. Uh, it happens. So, you know, the CEO caring about it makes a difference. Also, I'm a big advocate for white men. Yeah. Because when we talk about diversity and inclusion, mm. a lot of people who don't look different tend to feel excluded. Mm. And people tell me, well, that's okay because they're privileged, so they shouldn't get to be in this. Yeah. And my point is, well, that doesn't seem very inclusive. So how do we all come together? How do we all come along? And so one thing I love about the company I'm at, is, it's people in 50 countries. And so I can ask a the question, there's a diversity of how international we are. Yeah. They may all be white guys, but they're all white guys from different places. Yeah. And when you can do that and someone can say, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm different, let, letting that come out is so important. Mm-hmm. To assume that someone looks different, therefore they're diverse, isn't a good thesis. Yeah. It's how can I hear your story? Like, what made you think that diversity was important? It turns out that the stories that they have are all over the place. For instance, the CEO of Sonos, Patrick Spence, he's a white guy, Mm. and people ask him, why does he care about diversity and inclusion? I said, because he's Canadian. (laughs) Because if you're Canadian, everyone assumes you're American, and so he's so used to hearing people, you know, Josh, about Canadians. So yes, it isn't the same as someone's individual difference, but at least they know what it's like to feel different.
1: I I feel like it's a clarity around the definition of the word. Like when you hear inclusion and diversity, the thing that people instantly think about is either gender or race diversity. They don't realize that it's it's everything. Like you and I are completely different. You and I are completely different, right? Mm -hmm. Like we we share things, we're both designers, we're both males. Mm -hmm. That's about it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's pretty interesting.
3: Oh. It's, like at, it's like at MIT, when I used to run uh, diversity, culture type of uh, things, there was a student who was Native American who came to our committee mm-hmm. and he described what he went through and it was terrible. And I was the chair of the committee and I said, well, I'm Asian, I've experienced being called a chink and all kind of things. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, but that's immigrant racism. I've experienced indigenous people racism. Mm-hmm. That's where I realized everyone's pain is different. To your point, it isn't the same. But we have to hear each other's pain, others we can't get past it. I want to just jump to a quick topic that might
0: not seem as deep but is important, and then I want to jump to community questions, all right? Mm -hmm. Um, You do the Design and Tech Report, which is a fantastic read. You've been doing it for how many years now, John? Oh, it's going to be the third year this year. Third year. Um, What are some trends that you've noticed, uh, specifically in design and design leading some of the conversations in businesses today.
3: Well, I'm really excited because you on this diversity topic, um, one of the questions we're asking people, design leaders in particular, is does diversity matter on your design team? Mm. I was just wondering what people thought. And sure enough, over 90% feel it's important. In a small dinner I recently hosted, it was 100%. So again, why is that? It's because creativity and diversity are, are interlinked. So if you're a business running a company that's trying to be more creative, it has to think about how to become more diversity-minded. I think that's a very fair analysis.
0: <laughs> very fair analysis.
3: But I'm focusing on design teams, mind you. Because okay. if you focus on the whole if you, if you try to bring the whole company, that is noise all over the place. Yeah. I think creative people are tend to be the most accepting people. Mm. And what can we learn from them? Uh, so I look forward to hearing that. I'm sure in your travels, you'll discover that everyone you meet has this kind of inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wonder why? It's because that's how they function as creative people. Yeah. They're type O people. They need to bond with other people. Yeah, they need to give. They feel that sense. exactly. Um,
1: so I'm focusing into this design team now... Um, What makes for an effective designer in a business? Like, what should they be bringing to the
3: table? Oh, I think, well, this is a conversation I have at automatic with the designers a lot. Um, There's one designer there, Brie. maybe you met her before. She's always curious about the business results. Mm -hmm. And you find designers who come out of the craft or the science, and then they either don't care about the business, or they care about the business. Um, Either path is a path to success, mind you. But it's the ones who try to understand business that can actually make difference at scale for the company that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that designers who are curious about business results are the ones that can be the most successful in their career as designers in tech. So you talked about
1: craft and business, right? Yeah. Um, it reminded me of I, I believe I heard you say this somewhere about like the difference between a designer, uh, sorry, a designer and an artist, mm-hmm. right? Um, an artist. Seeks to create questions in a sense. Like you look at the work and you think of things. Right. Um, and the designer tends to answer them or solve them. Right. Um, how else do you define the difference between these roles? And how much does craft and science play to like whether you are an artist? Um, sorry, not craft and science. Craft and business play to whether you are an artist or a designer.
3: Um, now, again, the the artist thing is about freedom. Mm. An artist is free to do whatever she or he wants. It's not business. It's completely separate. Uh, business is about achieving an objective for the customer and, and producing value, which sounds so unromantic. Um, but we used to love buying Apple products and still do in some cases, right? It's like, I love that stuff. It stands for something. I'm irrationally paying this much more for <laughs> it, but it's so amazing. So that's more than just business. Yeah. It's something more, it's love, it's art. Um, and it's important for designers to understand, and I can see designers uh, all over the place catching on to this point, that you have a CFO might just be a spreadsheet person in your mind, but they also may be an artist. Mm-hmm. And that they're asking, well, what if we did this instead and change this, whatever, this way? Mm-hmm. There, is, there are CFOs who can think that way, and they're the ones who can't. In the same way that a designer may be very methods-based or can be much more generative. Mm -hmm. So being open to that kind of business thinking as not just all one size fits all, there's incredible business people out there.
1: And outside of having an understanding of the business's goals and focusing on those things, um, what are some other things that you feel designers are overlooking right now that might be costing them credibility within their companies?
3: Oh, um, I think that designers are a lot like engineers in that they're both generally introverts. They like to make their stuff. It's like so good to make that stuff. Um, And designers are different than engineers in that they like to introvert together. So they like hang out together, but they're all introverted. Um, I think that to be successful in a company, you have to network connect to different parts of the company. And if you choose to be an introvert, um, you're reducing the success of your design in that company. Yeah. So come out of your bubble, talk to the people in finance, talk to people in support, do some support. I love how automatic we're all required to do customer support. So get out of the, the design bubble. It's safe and happy, yeah. but it will make the company
0: better. So, John, in this next uh, segment here, we we source questions from the community. We have four questions that could be rapid fire.
3: Whoa, this is like virtual, like remote. Yep. (laughs) You're going to be okay, I promise. It's It's like there's no Twitter, but it's in your mind. (laughs) That's the future. Uh, I have a chip in my mind
0: right now that's talking to the internet. That's pretty cool. (laughs) So, we have four questions, okay? You you can answer these quickly. Um, How should designers explain the role of design to people
3: in their business? Well, I'm not too should uh, I would say that design is the ability to make something more relevant to someone that they understand, period. Mm. I say that because a designer can't just make something great and not knowing the person can make something relevant. They know something about that person. They can create relevance. They can create more relevance with their gift at the ability to craft a relationship between that person's mind, body, mm-hmm. soul. Um, it's a special skill.
1: The second question, have you noticed any trends with
3: how design teams are organized at companies? Uh, the biggest trend I notice is that people want to look, look for the answer. Mm-hmm. There's all these medium posts, books, you know, blogs, you know, there's like, you know, Compendiums, there's your thing. You have a playbook. Playbook. Uh, People look in there, like, how do I design it? People are looking for the answer, but there is no answer. That's why there's a thing called business school. That's why I went to business school, to realize, oh, there is no answer. Um, The era changes things. The people in the team changes things. The ecosystem changes things. People are hard to predict, so you have to be a good leader who is listening to all your people. Again, through my own failures, I had to learn that. I have to listen to every person or I cannot lead them. The third question is, when you're the only designer at a company,
0: how do you convince the people in the business of the value of design?
3: Wow, that's a good question. Um, You should have joined the company only if the CEO understood what design is. Otherwise, they're not going to... Get to blossom. So you don't think it can be taught? I I think it's hard to teach a CEO because they're busy. It isn't it isn't a matter of you get it, I don't get it. Mm. CEOs really busy. They've already got their stuff going on there. You know, she or he are like so busy. So it isn't that they're bad and they don't get design. It's right. like they're gonna be busy. So unless they started off, mm. oh yeah, design's really important. I've experienced doing like user research, testing, I built a product. CEO will probably be good for a designer. Yeah. But if the person completely came out of like, for example, a pure business program, had had never built a product, Mm -hmm. then that's not gonna happen because they're too busy with the numbers and the networking.
1: And we can end here. As the purpose of design continues to evolve, what are some roles and methodologies that you think might emerge over the next five years?
3: Well, I, I, I hope the following happens. I hope that more designers actually interact with customers and their whole lives and what it means for them to succeed with the product versus episodic, did I click on that or not? Or did I get through this flow? Did I pay? It's like, did they actually, their lives get better Mm -hmm. some way? And to understand that quote unquote end to end thing Mm -hmm. as part of their job as designers, that practice I think is lost right now because of the data and the millions of users and the distance. Uh, That's why all my work now is sitting next to people making websites and understanding why they want one.
0: Mm. That's good, thank you John. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, you made it to the end, congratulations. Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that, that we covered, with our guests, go on YouTube, go on Twitter, you can tweet us, you can leave us a comment, we'll get back to you, we'll help you as much as possible. At hi Podcast, that's the, the screen name or the handle for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook, find us, talk to us, we wanna converse with you. Uh, we're not gonna leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel. They're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've gotta check out the team at Searle Video. It's searlevideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.